0: did vancouver make the playoffs hockey
1: i have no idea okay. Neither do I. zero clue i would guess not but i do not watch hockey
0: okay. <laughs> like you never watched hockey <laughs> at all or so well, no
1: what's interesting is that i used to be an incredibly passionate Canucks fan for like i don't know almost a decade i watched every game i knew everything and then back in 2011, sort of three things happened at the same time. I moved out of Vancouver. The Canucks lost in game seven of the Stanley Cup. And there was the riots and all that. And then the next season started with the lockout. And those things like can, came together. And I never watched another game. Like, and then once I stopped watching games, I kind of realized how much energy it takes. It was taking from me to be that fan. And then I was like, oh, I, I just wasn't interested in going back. <laughs> To that level of uh, requirements.
0: <laughs> I, I totally get it.
1: Yeah. Are you a hockey fan? Do you? Uh, well,
0: it's have it's funny because um, I'm actually driving back from Montreal right now. So it's been a quite. Uh, it's a, okay. I love driving, by the way. Um, so I called a couple mm. friends to catch up. And um, one sure. of them is I know is an avid Leaf fan. And I said, you know, he's like, oh, you know, Carl, I'm telling you, this is the year. This is the year. And he's and he's given me all the all the reasons. Again. Yeah, and it was a good call because, you know, it's a it's a good source of entertainment, I guess. I don't follow him during the regular season. Sure. But I said, Okay, I laughed yeah. as soon as he started talking like that. And um
2: Yeah.
0: And I was like, Hey, you know what when was the last time that we made it out of the first round of the playoffs? And he said two thousand four. Which ironically enough is the um the same year. So I, I was a lot younger back then, obviously. I was probably, um, <laughs> I want to say it was like 18, 19. And I, re- I remember yeah, yeah. I drove a really nice car in the summer. But to do that in, this, in the winter, I had to drive uh, like a beater. We used to call them a winter beater. So the, the car, yeah, yeah, car okay. cost me 400 bucks. It was an old 89 yeah. Acura Integra. And I had a bet with someone, and I don't remember, I don't even remember what the bet was, but I lost. And I had to spray paint my car to, like, the Maple Leaf colors.
2: Oh, my gosh. is yeah. amazing.
0: But they made they made the playoffs. <laughs> so then we went downtown Toronto for all the games. And, you know, like, they actually, so that was the last year that they went out of the first round. So it was really, really, like, good energy. And I remember, yeah, yeah. like, after a win, everybody would be up on the light poles. And people would get on my car. And the top of the, the roof had <laughs> vents in it. and So... <laughs> Yeah, I was like, wow, that's the last time we got out of the first round was back when I had a car with like the Maple Leaf thing. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: Leaf fans are
0: very dedicated. They are, Peter. Very.
3: Yes. Carl. Thanks for thanks for uh, for joining us. How are you? Sure, sure. I'm good. I I'm assuming you can hear me well.
0: I can yep. hear you very. You must have like a headset on or something because you're coming. I, really I have clear. Uh,
3: buds. I have some buds on.
0: Well, they're working awesome.
3: <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Glad to hear it. Super.
0: Thanks for Hi, joining Gwen. me.
3: Hi. Should, <laughs> yeah, our pleasure. I should say <laughs>
0: us. Um, if you don't mind, um, uh, we'll start with you, Gwen. Obviously, you're, you're no stranger to our audience. And Peter, we actually have done something once before. Um, but if you can both give me like a one to two minute intro on yourselves. And please plug away anything that you're working on together or as individuals.
2: Okay. Sure. Gwen, go ahead.
1: <laughs> I will go ahead. My name is Gwen Preston. I um, I also go by Resource Maven. That's the uh, newsletter writing, newsletter business that I started, uh, goodness, a decade ago now. Um, the foundation of the business is that I, I write um, about what I'm buying and selling in my portfolio. And my expertise is in metals and mining. And so uh, people subscribe to that newsletter to see what stocks I'm uh, interested in and why I'm interested in them and, and what why I think the macro environment either does or doesn't support uh, particular metals at at that moment in time. And then in the last few years, Peter joined Resource Maven, which was lovely. Uh, I'll let him do his introduction, but he brought in his silver expertise. And then together we have launched Evergreen Investing, which is a newsletter written for um, generalist investors, not for people who are resource specific or who are particularly knowledgeable about the green transition and the investment opportunities there, but realize that there are investment opportunities in the green transition and would like some uh, someone to just talk about what those are and how to get exposure to them in a low risk way. So uh, that's me, resourcemaven.ca is my website. And uh, Peter,
3: what about you? Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, Gwen. Um, so I've been writing newsletter letters for a long time, uh, back to 2007 originally. Um, and then uh, through a few transitions, eventually connected with Gwen back in 2020. And as Gwen mentioned, I uh, launched a uh, with Gwen, a uh, or Gwen publishes it through her company, a silver focused investment newsletter, which like Gwen, for me, it's all about uh, silver stocks and investments that I buy uh, and and, sell. and uh, last year, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, last year published uh, a book on silver called The Great Silver Bowl, uh, which is all about um, the generational opportunity that exists in the silver market. Um, and so it gives uh, sort of a, a long uh, a background or a good background background. On uh, the silver market, the history of silver, the macro environment, the the uh, demand supply demand um, dynamic in the silver market, and what drives silver, and ultimately how you would invest in silver, and uh, and eventually sell when uh, we go through what I believe is a multi year cycle in in silver. So um, that kind of uh, sums up uh, what I do.
0: Well, thank you very much. And yes, uh, silver is definitely one of my favorite investment thesis. Um, so I, I do look forward to getting into that today. And and also, I guess what we came to talk about, which is the green transition, um, mm-hmm. the, the scarcity and the opportunity uh, that lies ahead. And I think it's, uh, for me at this point it's a no-brainer uh, but i've put in hours and hours and hours of uh listening to various podcasts and doing my own due diligence on companies and and macros and all that stuff so where would you start in this discussion because there's many different directions we could go
2: <laughs>
1: i mean i if if i can jump in i mean i think what i would say is that we're in a big picture wise in terms of investing we're in a bit of a Uncertain moment in the markets, right, and so uh, one question that arises at the start of these conversations quite often is, well, you know why would I do that now nobody nobody's paying attention to the green transition right now, everybody's paying attention to interest rates and recession risk and like how you can hedge uncertainty and things like that, and fair enough, that's fine, and big tech is still sort of leading the the stock market and all of that, and that's fine. that is what's happening right now, but um you, uh, Carl, mentioned this as a no-brainer, and I think what that's really referencing is that the green transition is a paradigm shift. Like it's it's it is happening. It's not a maybe. It's not a might happen. It it is happening, and it is transforming how we operate in the world, how we move, how we you know how we communicate, how we eat, how we do all kinds of things. And yeah, paradigm shifts certainly slow down, no doubt. When you know the macroeconomic environment isn't you know going gangbusters but they don't stop and so even if things have even if there isn't a lot of attention on green investing right now because eyes are all on other things that by no means means that the opportunity isn't there if anything it means that there's a bit of a pause um, and a moment to stop and think and uh, get in i think before it uh before attention returns to the space which it will once we get through this macroeconomic, whatever this moment is.
0: Yeah, I think that's very well said. And, uh, you know, I I know a lot of um, people that I follow do believe that, say, for example, uh, tech stocks are pretty good short. That's not investment advice, but uh, yeah. um, you know that's that's <laughs> I, that's what I'm looking at right now. Um, in fact, actually, I, I did I did own some uh, QQQ calls, <clears throat> um, or sorry, uh, actually not calls. I just owned QQQ uh, double leverage uh, ETF, and I sold that um, because I do think that it's it's going to go the opposite direction. So that is that's what I've done recently. Yeah. Um, so what what different commodities, what different things fall underneath this umbrella of the green transition?
1: So, I mean, the green transition covers, c- touches almost everything, right? And so when Peter and I were trying to figure out how we could best help people invest in the green opportunity, we had to decide which parts of that huge world um, we had expertise in and we had confidence in. And so what we decided to focus on was what we're calling the inputs and innovations that are necessary for the green transition. I mean, when you talk about green, it can get as wide as everything that falls under ESG. But we weren't interested in that, because that's poorly defined. Um, It's had its sort of ebb and flow already, shall we say. What we were interested in were more tangible things. So what are the inputs that we need to make the green transition happen and that that for us starts with metals and that's what led us to the idea in the first place because metals are the first thing that we're familiar with um and so we can talk about the metals demand in the green transition in a moment but metals are certainly a requirement energy and and how we how we get energy that's changing so that's an opportunity within the green transition and then also how we feed ourselves that's changing and so that is another input to the green transition that i think is a tangible opportunity carbon credits another tangible thing it's one of the innovations that is how the green transition is happening so we really wanted to go for tangible things that we could that were technical and existed that we you know not that weren't nebulous arm wavy things that would a lot of which will fall under that esg umbrella we wanted things that we could really buy, sink our teeth into um, and understand and profit from. So, we by no means are saying that those are the only things, the only opportunities in the green transition, but they're the ones that we know the most about, that we yeah. like the most, and that we want to talk about.
0: So, I wanted to start with probably the one that I'm least educated on, oh. which would be so, I'm more, most intrigued by that um, from an inf- informational, educational standpoint how we feed ourselves. Mm. Where's uh. the investment opportunity there?
3: Well, um, that is an area that I that I cover uh, in the uh, the different arenas between uh, that we split between uh, myself and uh, Gwen. And um, I mean, uh, this in itself is vast. There's no question about it. And in fact, um, the issue back from February uh, was one where I covered uh, this uh, this area in detail. And so you know, one of the big premises is that uh, we've recently we've recently crossed, um, uh, a milestone, I guess, in terms of world population where we've reached 8 billion people and, uh, you know, it took, it took centuries to, 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 uh, to go from a billion to 2 billion. And then it, uh, it, um, it just kept doubling and doubling again in the 20th century. So, I mean, you look at this and th- why is this important? Well, um, you know, the the farming industry, which obviously uh, we all have to feed ourselves the, the farming industry, it, it accounts for 25% of greenhouse gases. It accounts for 70% of freshwater consumption, and it accounts for 80% of habitat loss. So we really need to, to address this in multiple ways to... Um, to try and minimize the impact that, uh, we're having on the environment through, uh, through the whole, uh, uh food and, and food production and, uh, and, and, uh, and growing whether, whether it's food or whether we're growing trees for, uh, to, to consume the, them for wood and so on. So there are a lot of things happening. I mean, I'll just give you one example. You've got something called vertical farming. And so what it does is it takes the modern greenhouse and it builds it vertically. Um, so this is, this is, this is, Definitely, um, cutting-edge sort of technology. It takes, um, as I say, the, the typical greenhouse, and by by uh, setting it up on a vertical basis, um, you're actually you actually can produce as much as ten times what a commercial greenhouse will produce over the same surface area. And so there, again, there are multiple advantages. You can grow indoors. I mean, sorry, you are growing indoors. You you grow under controlled conditions. You can use recycled water. Uh, you remove the need for things like pesticides because you're controlling your environment uh, much better. You don't need to do things uh, like washing of the uh, of the produce uh, before shipping it. Uh, certain things like specialized lighting allow you longer growing days. You can extend your seasons. And so in many cases, depending on what you're producing, you can actually produce on a year-round basis. So it's not meant for everything. Uh tall, uh, tall, uh, plants, for example, things like crops, like uh, wheat or corn, uh, are not, are not workable in in a vertical farm but things like smaller crops like berries or salads make perfect sense because they don't take much room and uh, I mean some of the big advantages of this is that you're growing much closer to or even within a city so your transport costs are much lower that helps you lessen pollution of course helps you save energy uh, save you delivery times and so uh, that's just as I say that's just one example of the kinds of uh, technologies that you have um, that uh, are contributing to uh, to the whole agri-food uh, space. And again, there's, there's multiple ways to, um, to invest in it, uh, but uh, the trends that we've been seeing over the last um, sort of couple of years in particular have really accelerated the, uh, the importance of this kind of, um, of investing in this space. I mean, just think of a couple of things. One, uh, for example, when we hit uh, the whole COVID pandemic, governments went crazy with spending that of course added to um, added to inflation. Uh, one of the big problems that we had because of COVID and people were staying home, we we didn't have uh, we had this, this shock to our supply chains. Of course, uh, things were not being shipped around the world as as smoothly as they were prior. Uh, and then a year ago, you had Russia invade Ukraine. Now now that's a really big um, uh, impact to the whole sector because. Between Russia and Ukraine alone, these two countries, you're looking at about a third of the global wheat supply. Um, Ukraine is a major exporter of corn, barley, sunflower oil, rapeseed oil, these kinds of things. Um, and then, what has happened to, of course, because of the, um, because of the, of the uh, ch- uh, challenges to the supply chains. Uh, And and lack of supply shortages and so on. You've had all kinds of countries uh, become a lot more protective of their food production. And China, for instance, uh, extended restrictions on fertilizer exports uh, to favor consumption. Obviously, that sells well at home. But you know, if, if you look at, uh, I guess, on a pure economic basis, it's not a good thing. Uh, naturally, uh, it looks good, as I say, for your own citizens because you're doing things to help protect your supplies and keep these things at home. But really, what you're doing is you're causing uh, prices to spike, and um, you're you're uh, playing basically you're wreaking havoc with uh, with the, with natural um, natural uh, trends towards uh, spreading uh, these kinds of. Supplies around the world where they're more needed and from places that to grow them and produce them on a more um, cost effective basis so these are just some ideas um, and topics that uh, that we delve into and look at in terms of what affects the sector uh, the sector in particular
0: So I know for example wheat uh, had a pretty good run I think last year um, and then it, and then it pulled back do you do you see the wheat market? maybe getting, uh, seeing like a potential short squeeze over the next, you know, three or so?
3: Sure. I mean, look at what, um, look at what has happened just on the energy side. Something that I think that people forget is all this stuff needs to get moved around, around the world. and A lot of it is by shipping. And so if, if you, a lot. Uh, many times, people will ask themselves, "Well, why are, why are there shortages of things? Why is it taking so long to get certain uh, supplies?" Well, uh, a friend of mine works in an unrelated sector, which is um, uh, art supplies, and most of this stuff gets uh, gets imported and then distributed, uh, obviously, uh, around the world. But he told me that uh, this goes back about a year, year and a half. He said, "You know, Peter, um, containers." now cost a shipping container now costs about four times what it cost uh, prior to COVID. So what you have is companies that, uh, you know, when shipping costs were more reasonable, what they were doing is they were loading them up. Sometimes they were a quarter or three quarters full and they would say, well, that's fine. Let's just ship it out as is and uh, make sure, you know, we're delivering real time and and everyone gets what they want when they want it and so on. Uh, That's just not happening anymore. It's not happening as much for uh, regular supplies, non perishables, but, but also for perishables. So you have companies saying, well, uh, shipping costs so much now, uh, oil in part, of course, because of oil, natural gas, all of the, uh, all of the energies, uh, the traditional energies. And, um, so they're saying, no, I'm going to wait until this container is actually full then I'm going to ship it out. It's not cost effective for me. And this is still, uh, you know, we, and we, and despite, you know, doing things and compensating through those kinds of method, methods, you still have, um, you still have produce and all sorts of, uh, all sorts of food, uh, food, uh, supplies at, at record high prices. What will happen with wheat? I think that uh, we've seen, uh, oil hover around, um, $80 a barrel. I think that's probably likely to continue rising. Um, we may have had an interim peak in inflation, but I don't think, uh, we're going to see energy prices cool off very much. Uh, you know, getting wheat to where it belongs, uh, takes, takes energy. You've got to, you've got to ship it. And so, um, uh, you know, we obviously regularly go through all kinds of, um, weather issues uh, that's the case more and more. Um, we've seen that, that we've seen uh, bad harvests in India for example. I think that the problems um, until we can see uh, especially because Russia and um, and Ukraine are so crucial in terms of the wheat market until you can see that kind of, um resolve itself and it doesn't look like it's at all imminent i think that uh, we're going to see uh, we we are going to see wheat uh, prices start to rise again and uh, w- and like you said i it would not surprise me to see a, a spike uh, in the sort of n- uh, near to medium term
0: yeah me me too um, i just noticed here that there's over 9000 people listening live that's probably the most i've ever seen <laughs> um so welcome to everybody if you have a question, you can please uh, you can DM myself. or You can also request to speak. I know not everybody is comfortable with that, and totally understand. Uh, or you could just listen and uh, and and tune in and enjoy the conversation. So thanks for joining. Um, what about oil? Uh, you know, I, I, I it's it pulled back pretty significantly from its high, uh, and then there was some um, some cuts made. I think two weeks ago or so. Do you have any comments or uh, on oil?
3: Gwen, I'll, I'll let you take that.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, do, I don't follow oil closely other than, you know, to help me, to help inform my my macroeconomic outlook. In terms of the EI opportunity, we she are... might
0: be having a technical issue there. Oh, um, that's weird.
2: Just give her a second. Hey, Gwen, can you there? You, can you hear me now? Huh. Yeah, I, I can hear you, Gwen. Oh, okay. That's great. Um, I don't know if anybody else can. Um, Carl, can you hear me? I can hear you too,
3: Gwen. This is Peter. Okay, great. Okay, fantastic. Sorry. Um, I can hear you as well,
4: Gwen. (laughs) I'll see what's happening over there. (laughs)
3: That's no, <laughs> I can't hear her. That's unfortunate.
0: Oh, oh that's very
1: strange. He okay, still so can't? Carl can't hear me and everybody. I can't know, but that's... don't
0: worry about me. Okay. Um <laughs> Chris uh, Chris or Casey if you can maybe just take over for some reason right now. I I don't know why I can't hear Gwen.
1: Um well all I, all I was going to say is that I don't follow oil um as a, in in any way to try and um invest in it in the moment. I I'm interested in energy and where energy is is going. Um, that is certainly an important part of the evergreen investing outlook, right? Um, but I'm not. I don't follow oil on, on a moment-to-moment basis, so I'm certainly not the person who uh, who's best suited to to comment on where oil prices might go right now. Um, since Carl um, <laughs> is struggling to join us. Peter, I'll throw a question to you because we can sure. carry on for now. And That's a great idea. Carl joins because certainly he's, uh, he's important in this conversation, but let's, uh, let's try without now. Sure. I know you are obviously, um, a silver guy. Yep. One of the big reasons that you like silver is because of the evergreen angle on it. So let's talk about that for a minute. I mean, there's other metals that we can also talk about in terms of what what they're needed and what they're why they're in such short supply, but talk about silver in the context of the green transition.
3: Absolutely, and that's that's easy for me, yeah, <laughs> uh, because I follow this space so closely. So um, I think that if the relation of silver to the green okay. transition is is so clear and so bullish, it's uh, it's really exciting. Um, and I'm just going to quote a few numbers to give people a perspective on this. So the silver market is a supply, or sorry, is a demand of, has a demand of about 1.24 billion ounces a year. And so interestingly, just a couple of, uh, no, not a couple of days, a day ago, the Silver Institute came out with their annual survey. And the total supply of silver last year was just over a billion ounces. So you've got a shortfall of about uh, 240 million ounces, um, which is about uh, 25% of the entire supply. So that's the first thing. That's, that's a big shortage uh, when you look at a billion ounce market, 25%. Now, um, when you look at uh, the demand, it's split approximately 50-50 between investment and some form of industrial demand. And within industrial, the single largest use for silver is in solar panels, or what we call photovoltaic. Now, that has been growing by leaps and bounds over the last 10 years, and if you look at the projections, it's just going to just continue blasting higher. So, solar panels alone require, um, it is about... Uh, uh, 11% of the entire uh, silver supply every year. Um, And so if you look at what the International Energy Agency has forecast, so this is out to 2030, only eight years from now, um, the current electricity that is produced by solar uh, is only about 3% of the global supply. The International Energy Agency forecasts that output um, in terms of solar power, uh, electricity, should be up about nine times in the next eight years. So my simple math says if silver right now uses 11% of the annual, um, of the annual supply, and you multiply that by nine, you're at you're at nearly all of the silver supply going to solar alone within eight years. So you know that's going to just wreak some havoc on the silver market. And uh, as they say, the cure for um, the cure for high prices is high prices. Well, um, silver prices are going to have to go a lot higher in order to help curb some of that demand. And we haven't even accounted for some technology uh, changes that are coming to the solar market. So I know that, I mean, I've written about this. I know that you have to uh, as well, Gwen, that the technologies in silver and solar panels, um, the next technology that is the most likely to uh, dominate should use about 50% more silver than solar panels currently use. The technology to follow on that, what looks like will follow, can use, could use as much as 150% of the current um, demand for silver from solar panels. You've got things like solar panels that are double sided, you've got solar panels that are multi layered. And so these technologies continue to evolve. Um, an interesting chart, which um, Obviously, people cannot see through this call, but that I've used and referred to often shows not only um, solar panel uh, production and installations growing, but shows the what, what we call thrifting. So the amount of silver that goes into an individual panel that has been falling pretty steadily for the last 10 years or so. And then in the last couple of years, it's pretty much flattened, which means manufacturers have been unable to lessen the amount of silver uh, that they use in an individual solar panel. So that's about 20 grams right now. So it's relatively small in terms of the overall cost of a a solar panel, Um, but yet it's the single most most conductive of all the elements that we have. Um, And it's the single most reflective of all the elements that we have. The domination of silver to the solar industry is going if it ever um, withers, I think is going to take a long time to to change uh, in any significant way. So silver really is um, integral to the solar industry. I think that um, it uh, it just has so much farther to go, and we're daily finding new applications for silver um, it's It's crucial to things like EVs, which is obviously a big part of the uh, green transition. You use twice as much silver in an electrical and an uh, electric vehicle as you do an, in an internal combustion engine vehicle. And then you've got things like electronics and electrical applications. It's, it's an excellent conductor, so you find it in all sorts of things like uh, things that surround us smartphones, tablets, uh, flat screens. And silver's a biocide, a natural biocide. It's been known um, as a biocide to kill bacteria for m- millennia. Uh, people would drop silver coins into uh, barrels of wine, for example, to help preserve, uh, preserve it into barrels of water, for example, to help preserve that. So medical applications are um, all over the map uh, and they continuously uh, are finding new ways to use silver. Um, things like uh, medical equipment, tubing, uh, again, as it helps to kill bacteria. So silver really is what I've called in my book. I go into a lot of detail in this in the book. I call it uh, the Swiss army knife um, of metals because it simply does so much. Until about 50 years ago, I know I've been going on for a while now, but (laughs) until about 50 years ago, silver was a lot more uh, considered a lot more of a monetary metal. It still very much is. When inflation soars and and gold, for example, uh, takes off, especially because of chaos, uncertainty, and inflation, silver absolutely follows. Eventually, outperforms gold, um, but in the last fifty years or so, it has taken on a lot more of an industrial uh, role.
0: So, in your book, do you go into details about like prices and potential time horizons?
3: I do uh time horizons that's always the that's always the trick is if you have a uh, if you have a price target um is to line that up with uh, a time a time frame um, that's i'm not gonna go there <laughs> i do have yeah I do have a price target a lofty price target i can give a uh, you know a longer sort of time frame um, and so my my long term price target and you know at I, I, first i thought. I'm going to sound ridiculous when I, when I, t- when I actually you know, state these numbers. And in the last year or two, I've, I've heard people come out like credible people, serious analysts come out with numbers that are considerably higher than, than what I think. And so I, I'm, I'm feeling a lot more realistic these days. Um, so I actually think ultimately silver could go to $300. Uh, and I, I'll just, just give one example in terms of how I get to that number. The uh, the the peak in silver, it was in 1980, the initial peak at $50. It got close to that level in April of 2011. But in January of 1980, it reached $50. Um, and gold reached around the same time, $850. So if you look at the gold-silver ratio, meaning how many silver ounces it takes to buy a gold-ounce... At that point in time, it was roughly 15, which was uh, pretty much an all time or close to an all time low. Right now, we're right around 79 or 80. So, about 80 ounces of silver required to buy an ounce of gold. I think ultimately we're going to go back down to 15. And so, I I use the gold silver ratio and um, a forecast I have for the gold price. Uh, to get to that ultimate target in silver, I have all other ways that I get there, but this is um, I guess one of the more important ones and one of the simpler ones so my my ultimate forecast for gold and i and I actually think it'll go beyond this, but especially in a mania phase, but I think gold can uh, realistically reach about five thousand um, dollars in this in this cycle.
0: Well, you're about five thousand dollars <laughs> short of, the, of what I've heard, but yeah of course. exactly $5,000 gold, yeah completely okay. I,
3: I, that's right, so if you do five thousand dollars gold and you take the gold silver ratio at fifteen, that yeah. gives you a three hundred and I think it's three hundred and thirty three dollars silver, so I round down and I say three hundred dollars is my uh, is my target on silver
0: okay I'm going to ask Gwen if she could just say hello because I did remove her as a speaker, and then I added her again. <laughs> So I'm hoping that I can hear her this time.
1: Yes, can you hear me now? Can oh, you hear me now? I
0: can hear good you. Stuff. I noticed I that your I had voice, been Gwen. Kicked
1: off, and then I rejoined.
0: <laughs> I didn't take it personally. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> I, I some sometimes uh, Twitter Spaces do have glitches here and there. It's oh, um, so actually sometimes you you have to restart them, but uh, thankfully we didn't have to do that. I did. I I some I keep looking at the numbers, and it's pretty insane how many people are actually listening right now. Again, awesome. if you want to, uh, if you have a, if you have a question, uh, you can put your hand up or you can DM us. All right. Uh, so gold and silver, um, no arguments for me. I, I, I completely understand, um, why you're, you know, you put those price targets out there. Uh, obviously silver has a lot more use and purpose in the world. Um, I guess I would ask, like, do you think that, and this is to both of you, do you think that we could see, um, a commodity based economy? back, you know, back dollar type thing.
1: You mean like Hmm. back to the gold standard style or, or, but, but various commodities backing currencies.
0: Yes. Yes. Sorry.
1: I mean, it's an interesting question to ask right now because there's been all of this doomsday for the dollar conversation lately. Right. And, and I, as much as there is absolutely a move away from the U S dollar as, The world's reserve currency, it takes a very, very, very long time for those sorts of moves to happen. And this concept um, comes up and gets a whole bunch of attention every few years um, for for a variety of catalysts. And then guess what? It doesn't happen because um, I saw a great um, analogy the other day where somebody was saying, um, uh, okay, so say we all decided that we didn't like Amazon. And that we wanted to start, we just didn't like Amazon um, for various reasons. We didn't like their dominance. Um, And there were other providers who could potentially uh, provide the services that we currently get from Amazon. Would that change happen? Well, I'm already signed up to Amazon Prime and I already have this lined up and that lined up. And so many people are already lined up and it's already happening. They're not just going to switch overnight to walmart or whoever the um, alternative provider of services might be and that's a very simple analogy for why the u.s dollar isn't going to go away as a reserve currency anytime soon it's because it's already so established right like it's been established for many many decades as the currency and it just takes an extremely long time so
0: yes that's a transition that's underway can, and I, can i interrupt you for one second yeah. too they also a lot of countries own U.S. debt, so that so mm-hmm. it, for there to be a power shift there, it, it's going to take a lot of time, right?
1: Exactly, right? These are not, yeah, these these are hugely ingrained setups, and so it, moving away from the U.S. dollar to anything else, whether it's some sort of more commodity backed currency, I just don't think that that is going to happen. Now, of course, there's lots of interesting things out there. There are lots of people who try. To start alternatives, things like you know um, cryptocurrencies that are backed by silver or backed by gold that is that that is tangible and held in a particular vault, things like that exist, and and they have reason to exist. That, that makes sense for various reasons. Now, whether it's going to take off anytime soon, again, I just go back to the U.S. dollar being so established, and I don't see it happening immediately. But I do see. Commodities ha- commodities as a whole, excluding oil, because oil gets you know attention all the time and, and deservedly so. But if you exclude oil from commodities, commodities have not had a lot of attention over the last decade. Yes, there's been moments, especially during the inflationary um, crisis, when particular commodities got a lot of attention. But broadly speaking, we haven't had a commodities focused market. We've had a market, especially a stock market, that's been focused on big tech, almost to the exclusion of everything else. Not really, but big tech has been far and away the leader in the market. And so... I don't think we're going to go to a commodity-backed currency, but I do think we are going to shift to a stock market that's more interested in commodities as we exit from the current um, malaise moment that we're in.
0: Okay. I'm going to ask... Uh, sorry, one, one second. I'm going to ask Chris, uh ZRS, to ask a few questions because I know he follows all of this stuff. And I you have to have a question on oil or <laughs> silver for... So, Chris, do you have any any questions at this time that you can think of if you are, in fact, uh, listening and can turn your microphone on? Yeah,
5: my my question is more in regards to uh, lithium uh, brine extraction technology. I'm, I'm wondering if one of you two can speak on it. Um, I know there's a lot of it in Canada and whatnot. It's a new technology, and uh, if there's any value in that.
1: So I think, yeah, direct lithium extraction, DLE, is um, – The biggest question mark in the lithium space. Undoubtedly, it is the biggest question mark in the lithium space. And the reason that it is, is because just for some background for other listeners who who, for listeners who aren't familiar, um, lithium comes from two different sources. Generally speaking, there's spodumene, which is hard rock lithium, very low grade in the rocks. You got to mine the rocks like you would any other sort of normal rock based ore, crush them, extract the lithium that it's it's um it's expensive to produce um but it's sort of conventional technology um the other way that lithium is produced is from brines there's lots of brines out there um you know salty lakes so to speak that are chock-a-block with lithium and the way that we get lithium out of those is about as basic as you can imagine you basically you just Pull the brine up and you let it evaporate. And the stuff that's left behind, the salt that's left behind, then you can separate the lithium from the other things that are in that salt. And that's how you get the lithium out of brines. The, the, the um, brine, ex- brine sources, um, they are challenging because it takes a really long time for that liquid to evaporate. Uh, that's that's one of the biggest aspects of it. There's other things to do with, with water usage and whatnot, but, but the time is very significant and you need vast tracts of land to spread this brine out so that it will evaporate because we all know that we need things to have surface area for them to evaporate efficiently. So if you want something faster and in a less complicated way, you want to be able to pull the lithium out of the brine in a chemical manner as opposed to just waiting for evaporation to bring it to you. And so that's what direct lithium extraction is. It's a chemical process to pull lithium from brines. I couldn't speak to it in any more detail because this is chemistry. It turns out my, my degree is in chemistry. So I, I have spent some time, I'm not trying to trying to understand the range of challenges that there are with direct lithium extraction. And the basic problem is that all brines are different. And therefore, the chemical equation that you need to pull the lithium out is different every time. Now it is happening. the li- Direct lithium extraction, say that one 10 times fast, five times fast. Uh, direct lithium extraction will be part of lithium's future. Um, the, the question mark that really matters to lithium investors today is how quickly will what volume of direct lithium extraction lithium come onto the market? I'd say, mo, I'd say, forecasts that suggest that we will have sufficient lithium to meet demand generally assume that most direct lithium extraction projects will work well on time, on budget, things like that. I'd say that that's a very optimistic assumption, because chemistry is fickle. <laughs> and, so I, and, and new technologies take time to work out the kinks. And so we have both of those together. This is a new technology that is, chem- that is a chemistry equation. So I do think that it's going to play an important role in the future, but I don't think that DLE projects are going to come online anywhere near as quickly as, mo- as many forecasts assume. And those are the forecasts that suggest that we're going to be fine in terms of lithium supply. I don't think we are because those projects are going to be quite slow. Uh, some of
2: them might fail, um, things like that. Chris, do you have a follow-up there?
5: In terms of uh, timeline, you're speaking of um, what are the, the current projections, and, and we all know that, generally speaking, we're going to be um, way behind. But uh, what what are the current projections for that for technology?
1: Oh, for the technology? Um, well, I mean that this this is there's a huge range of opinions on DLE technology, and I mean, I would um, I don't have a chart in front of me right now. I know that the over the so the lithium market as a whole is expected to be generally balanced this year and perhaps next year and then going back into a deficit after that. Um but a gentle deficit if you assume DLE technologies um are generally successful. Um and so I I actually don't know the balance there, but I do know that as once we get there are not um a lot, there's not a, a dramatic amount of hard rock lithium that is Um, under development right now most of the projects that are under development are on the brine side and so quite a few of them are reliant on dle so a lot of the growth and i don't know the percentage i'm sorry that's what you're asking and i don't know a lot of the growth that's coming is reliant on dle and um and so that's where um the question mark really comes in um on the uh, investment opportunity side
2: okay thank you um, Chris,
0: I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you have, do you have a question for, for uh, Peter in, in regards to um, silver ratios at all?
2: <laughs>
0: Silver-gold ratio?
5: Yeah, in, in terms of, um, I, I, you're speaking about numbers in terms of um, supply and demand. Uh, can you speak to the recycling of silver and how much we can recover each year? Absolutely. And how
3: that kind of impacts the, the uh, supply equation? Yeah, absolutely. So, um that's interesting because it's been relatively flat. Uh that's one of the few things that actually uh w- it was up a little bit. Uh, it was up 5 million ounces uh between 2021 175 million ounces to 180 million ounces last year, so up 5 million ounces almost insignificant in terms of what it did for supply. Uh and it's and it's about Mm, I'm going to say about 20% of mine production. So recycling is relatively small compared to mine production and recycling has been very, pretty much flat mine production. I know you asked about recycling, but mine, just to give you some idea mine production actually fell last year from the year prior by, um, by five uh, by five million ounces, which is crazy when you think um, of the kind of demand. Demand was up overall in the entire silver market by eighteen percent. Every single um, uh, every single demand major demand category in silver was higher last year. We've reached records in 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 almost every single uh, category of silver demand. So recycling. What you'll get is that as prices stay relatively, I'm going to say, stable to to flat as we've had for the last, say, couple of years or so in about the, the 18 to 25, 26 range, um, what you're going to get is that recycling is going to be pretty much uh, sideways when prices spike a lot of this of the silver starts to come out of out of the woodwork um people will actually start selling their silver and you're probably going to see a a spike in in the recycling in the recycling numbers i wouldn't expect it to last because once that goes into the market with the kinds of deficits that we have right now in in the silver uh silver market that's that's sort of um one a one time deal it can happen uh, during obviously uh, each time silver rel- uh, spikes on a relative basis but these are not uh, ongoing effects and so i think that uh, you know it's interesting uh, to consider that a lot of silver um go- in especially in industrial uses uh we're talking about very small amounts Grams, fractions of grams, sometimes that go into a switch, for example, or an electrical connector. It's so expensive to recycle things. Uh, it's so costly to get that little bit of a uh, of value of silver out of something that most of the time it ends up in a waste dump. It's sad to say, but that's the case. And so, recycling really does it, it is not likely to change very much, as I say, until you see a, a price, a, a silver price spike.
0: Uh, Chris, do you have a follow up to that
5: uh, not not specifically to that, but in terms of uh you know i 'm very bullish on silver myself in terms of being a silver investor what um, what do you kind of look at in terms of physical allocation to portfolio
3: versus say miners right so i uh, I talk about this in the book, and I say typically to go around ten percent physical um, from there, uh, I split between larger producers, medium-sized producers, and explorers. And uh, I spread it across uh, these different categories. You're looking at uh, probably uh, being overweight. Some of the uh, You can be overweight in some of the, the large producers and the uh, ETFs and funds, that kind of thing, because you're instantly diversified. And then after that, as I say, um, you know, you you split uh, in, in smaller chunks into the uh, the larger producers, then the uh, the mid mid tiers, and the explorers. Um, I wouldn't um, allocate more than about five percent to a given name, uh, just because that way it'll help keep your uh, your silver portfolio from from blowing up. And if and if a given name did blow up and it went to zero, uh, which is obviously more likely to happen with the explorers. Uh, you know, 5% is not that difficult to make up from the rest of the gains in your portfolio. And what you'll probably see over time, I know I've seen it in mine, is that uh, specific names, a a smaller handful of names, if you give this a long enough time to play out, will account for the vast majority um, of the gains, especially in the explorer um, subsector. That's just the way it happens. You know, you're going to probably have, let's say you have 10 names uh, you're likely to see, um, with some luck, you're going to get a 10-bagger on one. You may get uh, a double to a five-time uh, return on a couple of others. Uh, a few more may be flat or, or maybe give you a double, and then you're probably going to have two or three or maybe even four uh, potentially go down by 80 or 90% or, or even eventually just sort of disappear but the returns you've made on those few that have had uh, these outsized returns of of um like I say as much as 5 or 10 or even uh I mean I know it sounds crazy to say but it absolutely has happened before um not only in the 70s but again in the uh in the 2000s some of these juniors have done 100 times returns it's just mind-boggling and some of the biggest names and I, and I and I talk about this pretty regularly Companies like Pan American Silver uh, has the world's largest, or or amongst the world's largest silver reserves. Companies like Wheaton uh, Precious Metals, which is the largest public um, uh, silver, it's not a producer uh, because it uh, it basically buys royalties, but uh, still considered a silver and gold company. Uh, These are multi billion uh, market cap companies. And in the 2000s, um, they were both, and in different time periods, they were both up about 17 times, which I just think is absolutely wild when you think of some of the largest silver, public silver companies out there can do that in the span of, of a few years. So that gives you some idea of what the juniors can do when, when people uh, start to get really excited and the market gets heated. That's great, Peter. Um, And and
5: I guess my final question is, um, if you could maybe speak to political risk, Uh, I know South America in particular, there is some some risks there. But what about like Mexico, for
3: instance, for example? Yeah. So um, Mexico has been uh, a little bit more uh, in the news lately. Uh, That's a, a great point. Uh, in fact, uh the uh, president is talking about uh limiting uh how long mining licenses uh will be allowed for. They're restricting um neg- how uh, how um land claimants can negotiate for rights to the minerals with hijos and other landowners. Uh this is a lot of talk, uh and but I, and I you know not to discount it. But it is a lot of talk right now. A lot of this has to make its way through um, through the company's, uh, sorry, the country's government levels of government to to get approval. Uh, Even if some of it does pass, odds are it would pass uh, with some watering down. and and it's important to note that uh, Mexico by far is the world's largest silver producer. So uh, and GDP, uh, I don't know the numbers offhand, but um, mining is crucial to Mexican GDP. We're talking about large numbers of people employed in the sector, and then related to the mining sector and all of the uh, of, of what that um, what that means to. Um, Companies that uh, are service providers to to mining and so on, they're going to have a tough time uh, trying to overhaul this uh, the uh, the mining code too dramatically. It's just it's just much too important to to the country. Um, that being said, uh, you know I, I talked about uh, how mining supply in silver was down uh, last year, which is to me at least quite shocking when you think of demand being so so much higher. Uh, But Peru is going through some some difficult times right now politically. Uh, Mining, uh, Silver mining, actually, or silver output fell in Peru last year. Same uh, is true for China. It was up in Mexico and in Argentina, uh, but that didn't help to make up for the shortfalls from Peru and China. And uh, something that I think uh, is really worthwhile uh, for, for listeners is to consider that silver is very different from a lot of, uh, of other metals in the sense that only about 25% of mined silver actually comes from what we call primary silver mines. About 75% of mined silver comes from uh, mining deposits that really hold a lot of other metals, especially mainly things like gold, copper, lead, and zinc. So, when you're talking about silver and the reaction of the supply side of silver to higher silver prices and to higher demand, uh, we kind of call silver the silver supply inelastic. Let's think about it like this. If you're, if you're a miner that produces lead and zinc, and silver is what we call a byproduct of your mining of lead and zinc... Um, in many cases, it's almost an afterthought. So, you know, the, the bulk of your revenues come, come from these other base metals. Silver, for you, as you as you produce it, because it just comes out of the ground with the rest, is is a great uh, contributor to your revenue. But it's, it's relatively small. Let's say it's 10% or 15% of your revenues. So if the silver price goes from, say, $20 to $30, are you really going to react that much, if and try and produce more of your other metals that uh, indirectly produce silver, just because the silver price spiked? The answer is probably not. Uh, to begin with, it's not that easy to try to ramp up a mine to, to to start with, and so to try to do something like that on a short-term basis because you've seen a spike in price in one of your um, or your one of your byproduct metals. Odds are you're just going to be happy to accept a higher price for silver and leave it at that and uh, let it boost your revenues. So, and and to compound things, uh, here's another interesting way to look at this is that if uh, metals prices go up, a lot of times producers will say, well, I can access a different part of my, a different area of my deposit where grades are higher. And so, I have to do less work and push less ore through the mill to ultimately produce the same revenue because I'm actually using a higher, um, a higher uh, uh, um, metal content in a different part of, of my deposit. So they're actually remaining flat in terms of revenue, taking advantage of the higher price and, and, not, even, um, and not producing more of that metal. That's as much true for silver as it would be for potentially any other metal. This doesn't happen all of the time. It's not that easy sometimes to just go and access a different part of your deposit. In some cases it is, uh, but you do get, um, you do get, um, some producers doing that. And so that could actually help push down the amount, uh, of metal that comes out because you're actually, um, producing the same revenues with uh, with lesser quantity, higher higher grades in some cases. So that just sort of speaks to the dynamics that uh, of how this uh, how how these things move around.
0: Yeah, that's extremely well said. I, I I'm not surprised you had such uh, detailed comments on that. Um, shall we talk about uranium? Uh-huh.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely for Gwen. <laughs> All right. So we talk right. about the
1: most boring commodity out there right now. It's just so sideways, right? <laughs> it's Like not doing anything.
0: So the <sighs> the spot price might be boring, but there's never a dull moment. Yes. If you follow, obviously you do. But I mean, for people that follow the uranium sector, yeah. it's never there's never a dull moment.
1: This is definitely true. No, I, I I was being a bit facetious. I mean, I I get the uranium spot price emailed to me every day, and every day I look and I'm like, oh, it's moved by like. 10 cents woo like it's just very very stable um which is fine i mean it's not exciting but it's actually fine so uh just quick step back um you know just to set the scene we had a a very long uranium bear market from 2011 to 2016 uh from fukushima uh you know everything fell off the uh, interest in uranium fell off uh, a cliff and um and so we had this uranium bear market. At the same time, Kazakhstan was really stepping up its production because it had it was just it was really getting into the game in a major way, and it wanted market share. So the just as uh, you know, investor interest in the space was falling off, and there were some and Japanese reactors went offline, um, taking demand down. Uh, we also had supply increasing, so we had a terrible bear market uh, that started in 2011. In 2016, the producers of the world got together and said, we are tired of just waiting for this market to turn itself around. We're going to do something about it. So the producers of the world did something that I thought was really cool, which was even though they're competitors, they decided to work together and collectively reduce the amount that they were producing because they're, they realized that they were flooding the market and it wasn't going to help any of them. So they all, you know, some mines got um, shut down. Um, some mines got uh you know curtailed, so they 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 produced less. There was also um a major move from players within and new players to the industry to start sequestering uranium. so these are players who were looking ahead to a higher price in the future and decided they wanted to buy uranium at its bottom and hold it um through what they. Predicted would be a you know significant price increase, and then you know eventually sell it when uranium was worth much more than you know the twenty five dollars um, that it was per pound that it was trading for back then. So and that that effort really worked. So we had the uranium price gradually work its way up. COVID had its own interesting impacts, but we don't need to worry about that anymore because that that sort of is said and done. And in the midst of all of that. We had another big player come onto the scene called the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. SPUT is the fun acronym for that. They were one of those sequesterers in that they buy uranium and hold it, except that they're also um, an exchange-traded fund. So if you want to have direct exposure to the price of physical uranium, you can own SPUT and they hold the uranium and you get exposure to it that way. No such vehicle... Had existed with scale um, to provide investors with exposure to physical uranium before. There was one called uranium participation, but it was very small and it was not dynamic. Um, it was not anything like what SPUT is today. And so uh, we had uranium price move very nicely in 2021 as SPUT sort of got itself rolling, and anytime. That investors were bullish on uranium and were buying into spot, that gave spot the ability to raise new cash. Is a simple way of of describing it. And they would raise cash and they would buy more uranium, and that would push the spot price up higher. And that would, you know, it was the opposite of a vicious cycle. It was a beautiful cycle where it was, you know, broad investor interest increased the spot price, bought investor interest increased the spot price. We got to a bit of a max point on that um, at, through 2022 when. There was just, you know, that moment petered out to some extent, and overall investors were less in risk uh, in 2022, you know, when stock markets were falling 20%, they weren't interested in sort of speculating, broadly speaking, they weren't interested in speculating on uranium, so uranium really went through a pause. And that's where this boring price has come from, is that you know, the, the uranium spot price has been boring for nine months or something now. It's been trading flat at 50 bucks. 50 bucks is a good price for uranium relative to the prices that we've seen over the last decade. But it's not the kind of price that will incentivize building of the new mines that we need to feed all of the reactors that exist, are being built. I can't
0: hear Gwen again.
1: And can other people hear me? Somebody else speak up if you can hear me.
5: Nope. Oh. Yes. yes. All right. Yeah, I can you just I'm just going to assume that this is a
1: Carl problem. <laughs> Poor Carl. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's not enough of a price to uh, incentivize the new mines that we need to feed the reactors that exist today, that are being built today, and they're planned for construction tomorrow, next week, next year, o- over the next little while. Because, of course, nuclear power is key to the green transition because it provides clean baseload power. We could talk for a long time about why it is clean and how nuclear waste is actually a very small in volume, safe in how it's preserved. Um, I believe that if, if anybody wants to talk about that, we can. But most importantly, uranium nuclear provides baseload power. You know, It doesn't ebb and flow with the wind or the tide or the sun. Um, it's It exists. And so 50 bucks is a good price, but it's not enough of a price. So the, the uranium market has to go again. What will cause the uranium market to go from here? I am not entirely sure. The last uranium move was spot played a very significant role in the last uranium move. And so for that to happen again will require investors to get interested in the opportunity in uranium. Now, it's a lot easier to get someone interested in the opportunity in uranium when you say uranium is trading at 25 bucks and we need... Seventy or eighty dollar uranium to incentivize new mine builds. That's a big delta that will get all kinds of investors piling in. When uranium's trading at fifty bucks, and you say, "Okay, we need uranium to be at seventy or eighty bucks." I mean, that's a good delta, but it's not quite as dramatic as the gap that existed before this move. And so, and then of course, right now we're we're in this odd market moment where nobody knows what will happen. Whether we're going into a recession whether inflation has been tamed right we're we're in this moment where risk speculative investing isn't at the fore and so that investor that flood of of support from generalist investors tuning into the uranium opportunity that's not happening right now but what is happening which is what carl referenced it's never actually boring in the uranium space is that contracting is picking up And so in uranium, I know this is a very long-winded answer. I will try and wrap it up, but uranium's complicated. Um, In the uranium market, there are two prices. Well, there's a whole bunch of prices, really, but we call them, there's two categories of prices. There's the spot price, which is the one that I've been talking about, 50 bucks a pound right now. And that's for, you know, the uranium. If you need a pound of uranium, you can go into the spot market and buy it today. Well, I mean, it's a little more complicated than that because they don't just let anybody buy uranium. But anyways, that's the spot market. The vast majority of pounds of uranium, however, are not traded in the spot market. They are traded by contract. So that's utilities who need uranium to make the fuel for their nuclear reactors do deals with the people who produce uranium, the miners. And those are the contract, and those are contract prices. And you, the spot and contract prices are quite different because, of course, the contracts are not for just you know a single delivery. They are for deliveries over many years, five, even 10-year-long contracts and so there's all the everybody has to consider where they think the price might go and the producers are trying to get the highest price and the utilities are trying to get the lowest price when uranium was in oversupply and there was all kinds of pounds of uranium sloshing around the spot market producer or utilities just didn't bother signing new contracts so like why would we sign new contracts when we can buy as many pounds in the spot market literally as many pounds in the spot market today as we need why would we bother signing new contracts so there was a long time when contracting was very quiet since the spot price moved up in the last over the you know a year ago the contracting market has really picked up and this is important because the contract price should in a good bull market in a in a uh, resilient or robust bull market, the contract price should lead the spot price. And that's because the utilities are forward-looking and they're saying, oh no, there is not enough supply. We cannot run out of uranium. We can't let our reactors run out of fuel. That's bad. We are looking ahead. We are seeing the supply gap and we are, we have to. Can anyone
0: hear me? I can't hear you. I can hear
4: you, Carl.
5: Yeah, I can hear you, Carl. I don't know if, I don't know
4: if he can hear us, but (laughs) I can hear everyone. Can you hear us now, Carl? Oh, once again no oh dear um
1: so the the utilities are forward-looking they're seeing the supply gap they're being forced to act on that gap the producers can also see the supply gap and they therefore have the upper hand and they're saying sure we'll provide you with uranium but you're gonna have to pay more than the spot price if you want to get it and so that's why the contract market should lead the spot market when there's a supply deficit ahead that utilities are acting are are being forced to act because of that's what's happening right now so that's sort of happening behind the scenes those who pay attention to the market are seeing it you know you can look at chemical one of the biggest producers of uranium in the world and and you know a publicly traded company every quarter they or every yeah every quarter they do a a call and there's always a question from someone about contracting there's always a comment in their news release about contracting and everyone pays a lot of attention to those contracting numbers because We know know that contracting volumes lead. And so we are seeing that happen. I do think that that means that we will get another move up in the spot price. I just don't know when that's going to happen, because I do think that the spot price is mostly uh, is a stock market phenomenon as opposed to a contracting phenomenon. So the contracting price moves, the stock investors get interested, and then they buy, you know, then the spot sort of effect can can move in. And so I do think it's going to happen. I just don't know exactly when it's going to happen. It probably depends, at least in part, or probably requires, at least in part, more speculative um, interest to come back into the stock market. So perhaps we have to get through this, this market confusion, malaise, recession question moment. Um, but I do think that there's a lot of upside ahead, and I have confidence in that because there's action on the contracting side.
5: That's- that's great, Gwen. Uh, since Carl can't hear anybody, um, he's <laughs> asked me to kind of take over <laughs> for a little bit here.
2: Yeah, uh,
5: <laughs> on the um, on the the price side for utilities on uranium, maybe I was wondering if you could speak to the the, the spot price of uranium going up and how that would affect the utilities' uh, profits, so to speak. Say on a on a typical a megawatt of, of production or, or, or similar unit.
1: Absolutely, I think the key thing. Um, for those who are considering investing in uranium to understand is that the price of uranium is, is there is not really important to opt to, to utilities. So the cost for a nuclear utility, as you might guess, is in building it. These things, you know, you have to spend 10 years permitting it and then you have to spend billions of dollars building it. And that is the cost in a in a utility. Yes, of course, there's operating costs and, and fuel costs money. But those the, the price of uranium is very small relative to um, the relative to the overall cost of, of building and running
2: a nuclear utility. And the reason that
1: that matters for
2: uranium investors is that um, is that utilities care that much about the price of
1: uranium because it's not a significant part of their cost profile and they don't care about it because they can't care about it they cannot let their reactors run out of fuel Um, that's what causes a reactor to melt down one of the reasons (laughs) that a reactor can melt down is if you let it run out of fuel and so they both have to buy uranium regardless of the price and don't really care that much about the price and that's one of the key reasons why when you have a uranium bull market, it can go absolutely nuts. Like it really can go crazy. And we saw this back in 2007. If anyone wants to look back at a uranium price chart, you'll see the spike in 2007. I mean, it went from, I can't remember the starting point, something like 15 bucks a pound to $137 a pound in the space of two and a half years. Crazy for a commodity price, not an equity, not leverage but the, the actual commodity increased you know all like that much just really hard to wrap your head around but it happened because utilities were just like they were, the the analogy that i that i fall back on is lemmings running off a cliff right one of them went is like one of them went off the cliff being like i don't care what the price is i just need to sign contracts because i am not going to be the one that runs out of uranium in 6 years when there isn't enough and all of the other utilities were like wait a sec I don't want to be that that utility either and so they all ran off the cliff and you know when they all when all of the demand runs off the cliff together that really has impact because the contract price leads the spot price so you see all this contracting and then the funds and follow uranium were like it's happening and they all pile in you know <clears throat> they all pile into the market and so the spot price moves and the equities thing for investors interested in uranium to understand is that there are just very few uranium stocks out there you know when you're talking about oil there's thousands and thousands of companies that you could buy if you want exposure to oil right that the the options are almost endless you want exposure to uranium you know in terms of real players in the production of uranium you're you're there's there's fewer than a hundred for sure. I mean, in terms of producers, there's fewer than 50. In terms of legitimate explorers with, you know, or developing projects, you know, the market is very small. And so when you do get a flood of investor interest into the space, it's like trying to send whatever Niagara Falls through a drinking straw, right? Like it just, there's it, the pressure is really intense. Because there's so few equities out there. Sorry, I kind of diverged from your question at the end there, but that's where my mind went.
5: <laughs> no, that's that's great. And um, we see a lot, we see the government really pushing nuclear. I saw Krista Freeland was at uh, Pickering Nuclear mm. the other day doing a tour and they've, they've allocated money for refurbishment of, of various reactors across the country. Um, so, I. Personally, I have a pretty good understanding of what's happening with Canada and the SMRs, but maybe you could speak to the audience on where these reactors are being built mostly around the world. For sure. And um, over over the next 5, 10 years. Yeah,
1: for sure. So what's interesting about that, I mean, China is the story and other countries, but China is absolutely the first answer to that question. Um, you know, Chinese cities are buried in smog and China needs to move away from burning coal to create power. That's, the, that's a, a very important line in the uranium story. And so, um, and also as a centralized government, China can build reactors, um, without, uh, without as without worrying about pushback. Is you know probably the way that I'll say it, and so for sure, uh, China is a
2: huge
1: part of the reactor build-out. But what is also really interesting is that they're built all over the world. I mean, Saudi Arabia is building
2: reactors, India
1: is building reactors. There's, there's reactors being built in more countries than you can than you would than you would originally imagine, um, and it's because of this understanding of how much power. Yes, reactors are built, but it's it's an investment in the future because you can get the energy intensity in a pound of uranium is just very, very high. And you can, not only do you get a lot of energy out of that pound of uranium, you get clean energy out of that pound of uranium. And so there's just a lot of countries that are seeing that, um, seeing that happen. Here in North America, what I think is worth mentioning, it's, it's interesting, is that Okay, if we take a step back there's been those who watched the commodity space know that you know there's been talk about the need to bring home um, control or production of uh, strategic minerals, right and so depending who you're speaking with, maybe they're focusing on graphite or maybe they're focusing on niobium or who knows right there's a whole bunch of of critical minerals that um, where the, where there has where there has not been much development, um, or, and, and mines have been shutting down if there were any. And so North America does not produce very much of these and therefore relies on China, Russia, name your country, um, for the production or sometimes for the, um, processing up. Sometimes there is production either in North America or in friendly countries, but then the processing of those minerals happens in China or Russia. And that, so these are the, these situations are causing people a lot of concern. And so there's a lot of this, okay, we need to bring home, we need to you know create domestic supplies of, name your strategic mineral. Now, this conversation has been going on for a long time. But I think uranium is kind of leading the charge. This conversation started with uranium like six years ago. It's like been a long time that we heard people talking about Russia controls You know the U.S. relies on Russia for half of its uranium, um, and uranium produces twenty percent of America's power. So America is relying on Russia for ten percent of its energy. That's that's crazy, and it is a bit crazy given you know geopolitics and relations and how how they can ebb and flow. Um, But it took a long time for that concern to turn into action. But with uranium, it is happening. So there is a stockpile of uranium. The US government is building a stockpile of uranium. They're buying that uranium from friendly countries. They can't buy it only from the US because there isn't enough production in the US to do that, but they're buying it from the US and friendly countries. So that includes Canada, it includes Australia, a few other places. But they're doing it. They're building a stockpile of uranium, um, and they're trying to help support the uranium sector, whether that's supporting, you know, um mine permitting or whether it's supporting processing there's there different ways that they are trying to support the industry and i think that's really interesting in a couple ways one of them is what you mentioned smds so those small modular reactors i don't know why i said D's. smrs small modular reactors small modular reactors are going to be a very significant thing in our future i mean if you think of in canada it's think of all of the country countries that's not the word i meant to use all of the towns
2: in the north run on diesel they run on diesel generators and 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 how and
1: polluting it is to run on diesel generators well those are the kinds of places where small modular reactors can fix that problem the investment is not that dramatic the technology is advanced in leaps and bounds over the last five years and these things are becoming a reality and so how widespread will usage of small modular reactors become i don't know um but i do think that it's happening and like you say there, there's political will behind this in canada christina Friedland, like you say was just having this kind of conversation um in the last few days so i think there's the political m- support is active on the uranium in canada and the united states And that's really cool. It's helping the story. And it's perhaps paving the way for some of the other strategic minerals that don't yet have actual government action. Um, Maybe
2: it's paving the way for how that might happen for those in the future.
5: Thanks, Gwen. Uh, Carl, I have a question from the audience. It's actually, well, from Carl. (laughs) He is asking, "What is the most undermined commodity?
1: Like the one with the biggest supply gap? Do we think that that's what he means?"
5: Yeah. Yes.
1: Huh. Hmm. Well, um, Peter, I don't know what your answer to that would be. I mean,
3: yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are some that we probably can't even of think for of. For sure, right? We have
1: to focus <laughs> probably on the larger probably that we know,
3: right? I mean, probably some kind of, uh, uh, you know, really highly specialized metals. Maybe things like rhodium or um, niobium. Uh, some of these are probably they have their you know, moments, right? the, the most expensive. Right, exactly. Some of these really, really expensive metals that uh, you know, for for like a gram, will cost you uh, uh, five thousand dollars or something crazy. I could I could imagine where uh, you'd have markets like that where they're very very under uh, undermined. Um, something perhaps more obvious so that we've heard more of. Uh, I mean, I guess within the market itself, if you're looking at shortages, I, I guess the one that comes to mind and we've talked about it is is probably lithium. Um, I'm looking at a chart right now from the, uh, from the International Energy Agency uh, and it shows that, you know, we need probably about in, in just the next uh, sort of eight years or so, we need about, seven or eight times the number of lithium mines that we currently have. I mean, you see this across the board for a lot of these a lot of these uh, metals, both some of the specialty metals, but also some of the more commonly known base metals, nickel, um, copper, and so on. But then you've got things like uh, um, uh, cobalt, Um, I mean, maybe you can think of a couple of others, Gwen, but uh, I know that, you know, all of these metals that are all absolutely critical to the whole uh, green transition are uh, in almost every case we're looking at over the next just the next decade or so a multiple of the number of mines that we currently have a multiple of the, of, of the current output. Um, and then, and then you've got, and at the same time, and this is why we're, Gwen and I are so bullish on this entire space is that at the same time, you're seeing, uh, often and regularly countries, um, that especially the ones with some, with geopolitical uh, problems are actually falling short of forecast output. Um, I gave the example of silver, for example. I know that Chile is actually quite challenged right now. Chile, being the, the easily the world's largest copper producer, is uh, is having big challenges with some of its biggest mines, um, and so. And then what you have is that you've got large producers and this has been in the news lately, uh, companies like uh, tech, for example, uh, a big uh, Canadian company that produces, um, things like copper and zinc and, and uh, a few other uh, important metals. Um, th- this is now a big takeover target. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's just really impressive and, and exciting to see how, uh, you know, consolidation is happening in the space because, Um, these big producers are realizing it's it's going to be so much easier for them to just go out and buy another company, even if they're, you know, if the price is high, then it is for them to try to find more and produce more. Uh, you know, from um, from green fields or, or sometimes what we call brownfields, uh, exploration or expansions of, of their existing mines. And and the lead times are crazy as well. So, um, in terms of specific markets, I really would have to say some of the special, more specialty metals, things like lithium, that just sort of jump out at me um, as as uh, as the most obvious.
1: What I'll add to that is that. Um there's two things that really does, you have to consider at the same time. So one of them is, okay, which market is, you know, has the biggest supply gap? And that's obviously a, a huge supply gap is obviously a very bullish thing. But then you also want to consider how tradable, transparent, and, and, and of scale is that market. So when you have you know, little tiny metals, um, that suddenly become really in demand for some particular reason, then, you know, the price for that metal can just go absolutely crazy. Um, but the exposure and those price spikes can also turn around very quickly because it's hard to know what's going on there. There isn't a clear spot price. For instance, you're trying to understand what contracts, what prices contracts are being signed at, and those contract prices aren't being disclosed. And so there's all kinds of speculation within insufficient information. And then maybe because it's such a small market, a new source of supply comes online and all of a sudden way or a new, you know, metallurgical process to unlock that mineral from my ore that's already being mined, you know, clicks in and, and then, and then the opportunity disappears. The, so you can absolutely make a bunch of money Betting on tiny markets that have huge supply gaps, but it's very risky, and you always have to act with not a lot of information. So what risky and perhaps and doesn't have quite the same level of spike uh, usually, but it's less risky, and usually the moves are more sustained. Sustained is playing the larger markets. So copper is the one that that I will reference right now. I mean, copper is the of the green transition. I know Peter would say that about silver, but I will say it about copper because every bit of electricity that's produced in a photovoltaic cell has to be moved along a copper wire. I mean, an aluminum wire if it's the massive high voltage power lines, but you know has to has to move along copper wires um, for a big part of its journey to its end use. And so, and copper is a very large. I mean, we used to call it. We sometimes call it the PhD of metals because it. It acts the way that it's supposed to because it's ba- it, the way that it's supposed to in terms of supply and demand and uh, political pressures and all of those things. and it does that because big market you can get very easy exposure to it. there's lots of stocks, there's lots of um, ETF's exposed to the metal there, there's lots of ways to play the copper market. Um, it's large and um, it oh, what was the other? <laughs> uh, right it, it's a large market um, that is In high demand, I don't really mean in high demand, that is, it is cannot be substituted. You can't decide, oh, the copper price has gone up, so now I'm going to use something else in my wiring for my house. You can't do that. So it's not replaceable, and it's a large market. So the copper market is facing a very significant deficit over the next like six years. It's the biggest deficit that we've ever seen in the copper market, and it's happening because Over the last 15 years, 20 years, um, especially the last 15 years, there just haven't been enough mines built. And there haven't been enough mines built because there hasn't been investor interest. I mean, I say 15 years, really, it's 10 years since the peak of the last metals bull market in 2011. So there hasn't been enough investor interest to put new money into the space. Management at mining companies became very conservative because, to be blunt, They did a really bad job in the last metals bull market and they wasted a bunch of money. And so building mines that they shouldn't have built, they were poor decisions. And so management actively became conservative in the wake of those mistakes and stopped building new mines. I mean, I say that as though it's uh, black and white. Obviously, they still built some new mines, but new mine builds really slowed down. And uh, permitting of new mines Only gets more difficult every year. So those three things together: no, no investor money, really interested in the space, management that was not particularly interested in building new mines, and it becoming harder and harder to be allowed to build a new mine means that there just were not new mines built over the last ten years to anywhere near the extent that's needed, and that's why we're facing such a dramatic copper deficit going forward. And so, if my asks me what metals. Should I play to have leverage to have exposure to the you know the ever the green transition? My two answers are silver and copper, and it's because they are real markets where you know the price, there's lots of volume, there's lots of um, information. the demand is very real, they can't be substituted, and um, when their prices move, the moves usually sharp they don't go suddenly up and suddenly back down so you don't need to be paying attention on a daily basis to your portfolio to be able to capitalize on a sudden spike in a price this is something that unfolds because this is a drum this is like a a, a huge freighter turning around in the ocean right it, it doesn't just spin it takes a long time to turn around and it's got momentum in that turn and these things you know you can really bear your teeth in it so that's my answer to the question
2: is it's not just about which one has the biggest supply gap Okay, so does anyone else
4: have anything to add? Gwen's like, um, I'm done now. That was quite a lot of talking. Um,
3: you're I, I you're did, full I,
4: of knowledge. That's okay. <laughs>
3: um, so that is that, Casey.
4: It is. Hi, uh, hi, Casey.
3: So I did hi. want to throw in a couple of points. One is that um, it makes perfect sense. You know, Gwen's Gwen's points and arguments. you think about it you know it's it's one thing and i used the example before rhodium it's right now it's almost seven thousand dollars to buy an ounce of rhodium uh which is ridiculous crazy and but go out and try to find and and see if you can get your hands on an ounce of rhodium um not that easy to to do uh you know that thing could spike to twenty thousand dollars an ounce but if you can't get your hands on it and then if you do and, and you you have a hard time Turning around and buying, finding a buyer for it, uh, then you're no farther ahead. You you haven't been able to lock in those gains, and and just a point on on copper to give you some idea of how tight the copper market is right now. If you look at what we call um, uh, copper warehouse stock levels, mm-hmm. there's the um, the London Metals Exchange, and and Gwen and I track that to watch you know how tight the markets are. Well, we're actually at five-year lows um, in the in the copper market, so that tells you. Like, I don't know the exact number, but I believe it's a question of just a few days, which is unheard of in terms of uh, you know the, the kinds of stocks that you can draw on if you need copper to to produce things. So uh, the markets have really gotten really tight, and if if anybody's uh, who's listening is really a uh, you know big on the green transition, believes this is happening. Then it's hard to 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 be um, bullish on the green te- transition and not be bullish mining. It absolutely, I think, to us means a, a super um, multi year bull market in mining because uh, metals are so crucial to the entire uh, to the entire transition.
1: Absolutely, yeah, for sure. Um, I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of um as we said at the beginning there's a lot of different angles on investing in the green transition a huge number and that's great um because one of the things i said right at the beginning of this call is that the green transition is a paradigm shift it's changing how we do that we all do every single day and so when we go through a paradigm shift like that it erases old investment opportunities but it creates new ones at the same time and so and and one's very much plural there's all kinds of investment opportunities that are related to the green transition we wanted to focus on those tangible inputs and innovations that are required for this transition to happen and so metals um and perhaps you know we all start with what we know right and peter and i know metals very well and so that was that was what actually led us into this we're like we wanted to help more people to understand the opportunity in metals we're like well the opportunity is really the green transition and then we we thought about it some more and we're like well that's also the nuclear opportunity and that's also the carbon credits opportunity and guess what there's also opportunity in agri-foods and in recycling and so we should pull those things together so that's why we're writing evergreen investing is it's this focus on these these things that are needed there are, there are innovations like carbon credits and their inputs that are necessary for the new infrastructure uh the new way of doing things um, to happen um and so yeah, it's uh it's exciting. It's it's metals investors have um developed a lot of patience. <laughs> For
3: better or worse. Uh yeah.
1: Um and uh <laughs> and with when we talk about things like copper, even silver, um, you know, silver and gold have been doing better over the last uh month or two, which is great. Um that could have been its own conversation. We won't necessarily we won't get into that right now, but um, you know, copper has, it has just been sort of steady as she goes. It's doing well, but it's not, it's not dramatic. Copper equities are also not sort of exciting. Um, some of them are, but they're not, you know, they're, they're not grabbing headlines. But the longer it takes for investor interest and government momentum to get interested in this problem, the lack of metals to supply the green transition, the more coiled the spring gets. So, you know, the longer we wait for governments to make permitting easier and for investors to start, you know, putting more interest into copper miners and for those copper miners to turn around and then really start building new mines, you know, the worse that supply gap comes, the lower those stockpiles that Peter just mentioned get. And and like he said, they're already at historically low levels. And so that just coils the spring more and more tightly so that once it goes, you know, the copper price it's been you know in the four dollar level for quite a while here does it go to seven dollars I, I, that is definitely possible given the gap and the necessity of copper in our future so that's why we're so excited about it um yeah i don't know if uh if, if any of our uh others are, are here back no that's awesome
4: yeah does anyone i don't know if anyone's got any more questions or anything um but uh thank you for the information you guys have uh gone on about a lot got a lot of uh, information and knowledge up there so that's great um, and Carl uh, extends his apology oh. for the technical difficulties <laughs> yes. he's very disappointed that he couldn't uh, fully be involved this time but yes. next, time, next time so thank sure. you well, thank and you. thanks everyone for joining
1: yes thanks Casey and, and Carl for sure um, for, for hosting us and if you want to yeah. to find either of us uh, you know resourcemaven.ca is, is, uh, is where I'm located Silver Stock Investor dot com is where peter is located and we are both at evergreeninvesting.com so um or dot .ca? ca sorry dot ca yep. evergreeninvesting.ca <laughs> i almost gave the wrong way <laughs> um but we're more than happy to answer questions if anybody wants to send those over or or you know dm us on on twitter or whatever we're more than happy to answer questions uh because we're excited about this stuff
3: You bet. It's been a lot of fun
1: for sure. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks everyone. Thanks for listening and, uh, have a good afternoon, evening, night, morning, whatever
2: it might be for you.
3: (laughs) That's right. It's been our pleasure. Thank you to everyone.
2: Bye.